0: Hello, my name is Justin McClure and I'm here today with Will Sloan And you're listening to the Important Cinema Club (laughs) Special alert! Before we start the episode, I want to advertise the Important Cinema Club journal Which we published officially last week
1: On the last podcast, we talked about how we wanted to put a challenge out to Important Cinema Club Nation Let's get us as the number one movie book on Amazon (laughs) And we were kind of joking, right? We didn't think it would happen Well, bam! Important Cinema Club Nation united And we were the number one book for a brief
0: moment for a brief
1: moment in movies on Amazon so thank you for rocketing us to success and I think the next step is to get us on top of the New York Times bestseller list (laughs) number one let's do it we can do
0: it as long as people go to amazon.ca amazon.com amazon.uk amazon.de yep and they buy the important cinema club journal for the low low price of whatever it is on the platform that you're on it's it's all different
1: it's $12 US I know that
0: it's about $15 and change Canadian Yeah. and you'll get it in a few days as we've seen from a bunch of people who were nice enough to text us images of them reading copies of the journal.
1: Classic articles about everything you could possibly want. And hey... We've actually got a launch coming up on Sunday, February 24th at the Imperial Pub in the heart of downtown Toronto. Mm -hmm. Dundas station. If you're going by the subway, Justin and I will be hosting a soiree at which we will record a live episode of the podcast on the Oscars because we are on the same day as the Oscars Uh, before though. So
0: we're getting you primed up for it. Yeah,
1: (laughs) (laughs) We'll be doing a, a, a little episode talking about the history of that wonderful annual ceremony you
0: sarcastically talk about the oscars all the time and i know better than anyone that you love it
1: i you watch love it every it with year all your and then justin and i will each be doing a presentation on a facet of cinema history that fascinates us mm-hmm.
0: probably related to the uh, journal in some way so
1: folks we want you there
0: Uh And we want you to buy a copy if you haven't, which you can do there if you live in Toronto, or to go to Amazon and get it. Because the more copies are bought, the more me and Will will be like, hmm, maybe we should make another one if the audience demands
1: it. And remember, folks, all proceeds go to Jeff Bezos, who will use the money to green light Wonder Wheel (laughs) 2. Wonder Wheel 2. And that's something else that we really want.
0: Whoa, new news.
1: Woody Allen is suing Amazon for canceling his contract. Uh Uh-oh. Well, I guess you have to buy our our, uh, publication so that Jeff Bezos can fund his lawsuit against Woody (laughs) Allen.
0: (laughs) How much is Woody Allen suing him for again? $68 million. Oh, my God. Hope he gets every penny. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So back to our regular schedule programming. Today, we're doing an episode on Joseph H. Lewis.
1: Who is Joseph H. Lewis? Folks, we're back on Poverty Row. Yeah! You may remember the mascot of the Important Cinema Club podcast, Edgar G. Elmer, the famous director who fucked up his career and spent his whole career working on the lowest studios at Hollywood, the studios that made Mm -hmm. B-movies, trying to... Turn Z-grade movies, Sow's ears into silk purses. Well, we have another director in that mold, Joseph H. Lewis, who started at PRC and Monogram, two of the worst studios in Hollywood, and eventually made his way up to, you know, Columbia, some some studios. He to make, worked for MGM for a while, yeah, and he made sort of B-level studios there. But like Ulmer, he was somebody with a consistent visual identity in his cinema, and I think probably. Uh, He's better than Almer. A, <laughs> a better batting average. <laughs> uh, this week I sent a
0: text to Will that said, Joseph H. Lewis's films are the movies we always hope to see when we watch an Edgar G. Almer film. And Which...
1: I had to sadly agree.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and Joseph H. Lewis is most famous for Gun Crazy. That's the one that everybody knows him for.
1: You know, the first time I saw a Joseph H. Lewis movie, it was the 1941 Bela Lugosi horror film, The Invisible Ghost. One of the rare horror films that he made. I saw it as a teenager. It was one of Lewis's earliest films. Didn't know anything about Lewis, but what I did notice that it had a lot of scenes that were shot from the perspective of inside a fireplace and you would see the flame in front of the camera while the characters past the frame were talking. And I thought, wow, that's a weird shot. (laughs) Um, And then I read that it was by this director who the French loved. And it was because of shots like that scene in the fireplace so
0: joseph h lewis got his start as an editor uh he worked at republic for a while he ended up directing a bunch of westerns like those kind of churn them out in six days um starring i don't even know their names but like you know western stars that nobody now
1: would n- like a randolph scott types
0: yeah i would say like but z-grade randolph scott types yeah and then what's amazing about his story is that he directed those westerns and he ended up without a job waiting for phone calls and he would get them and they'd be like oh we'll have a job for you on Monday then they wouldn't call on Monday he actually went up to a studio boss and said I need a job and the studio boss went listen we don't have any directing work for you I'm sorry and he's like I will do anything just give me anything what do you have he's like well we have an assistant in the film lab he's like I'll take it Mm -hmm. which answers one of those questions that I always have when you look at a directed filmography how did they pay the bills Mm -hmm. and Joseph H. Lewis is very honest in all the interviews that he does, which is that, like, he worked at a wire factory at night. He uh, worked in the film lab for a few months where people had a story that he was looking for stock shots for a film that he directed. But nope, he was just sweeping the floors until eventually the phone rang again.
1: And how did he get his jobs at monogram and prc
0: he was at an athletic club and he said that it was like the last week he could be there because he had no money to pay for anything and he met a producer who said hey didn't you use to direct pictures i have a company we need westerns made uh let's get you in there and he was like we can only pay you 250 dollars and joseph h lewis was like oh that's fine you know i used to make 250 a week like back when i started and i'm willing to start the bottom and he was like "No, no no that's 250 total for the whole movie and he was like what Okay, well, I don't have any more choices, so I guess I'm starting back at the bottom where they can pay me shit. And that's what, in 1940 dollars? Yeah, I-, I made a calculation and it wasn't that much. It was something like $2,000 to like direct a film.
1: So folks, um, if there are any film producers out there who want to hire Justin to make <laughs> a feature film and you pay him $250, I guarantee you he will take
0: it. <laughs> yeah, probably. So he went back into the Western mill, just churning out these kind of, not generic pop boilers, but just the scripts were lame. And he was famous for being Wagon Wheel Joe where anytime he had a shot that he needed to spice things up a little bit, he had like a box of wagon wheels that he carried around with him and he would put one in the bottom of the frame to create like depth in the image. So there'd be a wagon wheel and you'd see through it at the characters to the point that the producers were like, we hate Wagon Wheel Joe he cannot work for us because he's going to shoot everything through wagon wheels
1: this is the key thing to know about Joseph H. Lewis Mm. this is the visual signature of his films he loves shooting through stuff he likes something in the extreme foreground and then something in the extreme background (laughs) and whenever I see it it's like Spike Lee with his shot of like people on the moving sidewalk he
0: promised them he would not shoot through wagon wheels and a producer showed up on set one day and it was in a bar like a western that he was shooting and there was like a big kind of wheel of fortune and he was shooting through the hole in the Wheel of Fortune mm-hmm. and the producer was like you can't do this and he's like what it's not a wagon wheel
1: <laughs> and so you know we each watched uh, one or two of his Poverty Row pictures his I watched in yeah Invisible ones. Ghost and I watched Pride of the Bowery which is a Bowery Boys <laughs> film um, and when you're watching stuff like that you kind of want any sign of life yeah. you want to know that somebody is because you know the quintessential Poverty Row director is William Bodine mm-hmm. the guy who, who made 500 movies didn't really care about any of them and he parked the camera down and if you want to learn more about him read the importance of a club journal yep william bodine once had a quote where he said you know uh let the other arty guys uh put their camera and shoot through a chandelier or something he I... was talking exactly about <laughs> uh, joe lewis so i i watched pride of the bowery this is when the bowery boys were still the east side kids Because
0: so they were still
1: kids well yeah i mean <laughs> teenagers leo Gorsi looks 58 no matter how <laughs> old he is perhaps if people don't know who the bowery boys are because after all this is not 1948 (laughs) yep uh the bowery boys were a, a team of tough talking uh lower east side comedians who they started at warner brothers in films with Humphrey Bogart. Mm -hmm. And towards the end of their career, they were basically like a bargain basement, three stooges at Monogram. And they were old by the time that they finished
0: at Monogram. (laughs) They were like in their forties and they were still called the Bowery Boys. Yeah, they were still
1: playing kids. (laughs) This one that I saw, Pride of the Bowery, is sort of halfway between those two poles. It's kind of, a, it's got comic elements, but it's basically a drama where the boys are, uh, sent off to a military camp mm-hmm. and they have to learn discipline and, uh, you know, the, the rigors of being in a military camp, but you lean forward anytime that camera moved, right? Well, I was, as I was watching it, I was sending you screen grabs. <laughs> yeah. Every like, time. That, uh, Lewis touch. And it's like the Lewis touch is there. I don't know if it makes pride of the Bowery worth watching exactly, <laughs> no. but if you are watching it for Joseph H Lewis, there are so many nice visual moments because it's not just putting something in the foreground and putting something in the background. He's always thinking of what is the most interesting way to shoot this? What is a way to shoot this scene that conveys the emotion of the scene? Even there's one scene in Pride of the Bowery where we're following the Bowery boys as they're Uh, walking towards the camera through the military base. Uh, It's just following them, and then they stop, and the camera keeps going for a few more feet, and then it pauses. And there's something about the dynamism of that shot that I really respect. Yeah,
0: his name was really Joe Dynamism Lewis because he would bring (laughs) to this dross that he worked on actual care. Like, he said that even when he was being paid $250 a movie, he would still work... On the film weeks before then, planning out every shot like Hitchcock and figuring out a way to make it interesting, even though the script was lame and not funny. And, you know, like anybody who creates storyboards, he says the right thing, which is you get the set and you throw the storyboards out because you're not going to have
1: time. But now you have an idea of what you want to do. I mean, in Pride of the Bowery, there's a scene where all the Bowery boys are out doing manual labor by a lake. And just the way he frames it, I almost want people to watch this movie just so they could see the framing of this shot with this beautiful scenery in the background and, you know, two rows of Bowery Boys in the foreground. (laughs) Yeah, like Don't watch this movie, guys. It's so well composed. This is the
0: beginning of us talking about him, so we're going to get to the good stuff (laughs) because now we're going to stop at Invisible Ghost, a Bela Lugosi picture, which I watched and is most famous for the film where Bela Lugosi throws his coat on um, his victim's head and then kind of strangles him by walking
1: towards the camera. Now, it's been a while since I seen the invisible ghost but i believe it is Bellagosi lugosi is a, a rich guy whose wife has died mm-hmm. and every night he thinks he sees her ghost and that yeah. sends him into a murderous rampage
0: that's right and what's fun about the movie is that bella lugosi plays a nice guy in the film who only turns into a murderer when he sees his wife, who gets up and looks through the window every night, um,
1: which drives him into an insane rage. It also has perhaps the only respectful depiction of a black character in any movie from before 1970.
0: That's right. While he (laughs) is their servant,
1: he is not... He's not Mantan Morelander. Exactly, yeah. Yeah.
0: And so, after that string of PRC pictures, he continued to make PRC films. He made Secrets of the Co-Ed, he made Minstrel Man, a musical, which I'm shocked you haven't seen.
1: Well, the set design was by Edgar G. Elmer, in fact.
0: Supposedly, Edgar G. Elmer directed it for a few days and then stepped back and Joseph H. Lewis took over. So the set design
1: would technically be by Ulmer. <laughs> it's a blackface yeah. uh, comedy, right?
0: Yeah, it is. And um, Joseph H. Lewis directed two musicals. The other one he did the musical numbers for was the Al Jolson story.
1: Well, the Jolson story was a, a good gig for him at that time because it was one of the biggest movies of the year. It got nominated for a bunch of Academy Awards too. Yeah, it was a huge smash. So and Joseph H. Lewis did the musical numbers on it. I mean, around that time, by the time he did the jolson story he had sort of been called up to the big leagues i guess his work at PRC and monogram was considered good enough that he was allowed to direct B-movies at Columbia.
0: Well, his first Columbia film was the big hit for him, and it's one of the films that, other than Gun Crazy, he's the most famous for, and that's My Name is Julia Ross from
1: 1945. It's a 65-minute, all-killer, no-filler psychological thriller. It's, <laughs> wow, that's a lot of rock. It's about a young woman who has fallen on hard economic times who interviews for a job being a live-in secretary for an old widow. The widow and her family like her. They say, Come to our house. Uh, and then she wakes up to find that. Uh, her identity has been taken from her. She is now being told that she is the uh, sick wife of the widow's son, and she cannot escape. And the best part about this movie is that she
0: doesn't buy it for a second. Yeah. Like, you'd think that one way to approach it was that she slowly gaslit until she's like, oh, maybe I am this person. But nope, she's like, this is bullshit. And the entire
1: film is her trying to find clever ways to get out of this situation. I mean, really what they're doing is gaslighting the rest of the world. That's right. Like, yeah. Visitors come and doctors come. Mm-hmm. I feel like it's his next movie, "So Dark the Night," that really has all of the Joseph H. Lewis visual flourishes in it. Mm. Uh, My name is Julia Ross. I mean, it has some of them, but I
0: think it does. Yeah. the way that it kind of captures the shadows as they enter a room and the way that it's so taunt and that it's a uh, woman protagonist is portrayed very proactively, which actually happens a lot in his films as he mm-hmm. goes on in his career. And this is the film as well that the story goes that Harry Cohn, the terrible man who was the producer at Columbia at the time, was supposed to watch some dailies of the A pictures and they didn't have them ready and he went, all right, show me the B uh, picture dailies instead while uh, Julia Ross was shooting and he saw some dailies of it and he went, my God, who directed this? This is amazing. And when um, Lewis went over his allotted days of shooting, I think he did 18 days of shooting instead of 12, which is still a hilariously Mm -hmm. small amount of time. Harry Cohn went, oh, that's fine. Let him shoot because he's delivering a great picture.
1: Yeah it's a 65 minute movie that has like the, the lushness and the quality of a, of an A-picture. Mm-hmm.
0: And like you mentioned, So Dark the Night, that was the one that kind of Lewis's style is all over it. Now, he's a director that until the end of his career took great joy in using as little as possible to imply setting and mood. I mean, So Dark the Night is famous for there's a French village in the movie and the way that Lewis went about it is that there was a bombed out uh, set that they'd used on a war picture and he figured out the exact angles that he wanted to use. So we've just built backdrops um, at one point. Someone's looking out a window and the way that he did it was that he showed the reflection of the cars moving <laughs> to make it look like there's a city behind them. And he just loved this. He loved going in and like, Oh, just put some black over there, some fog here, a street light. And then we
1: got our setting. I mean, jumping ahead a little bit. Uh, this reminds me of, Uh, one of his most popular movies which is his 1955 noir film the big combo where you know it's regarded as a very gritty and uh, sadistic and brutal noir there's something in the visual identity that he gives that film that makes it more unsettling because you know he uses a lot of uh, heavy shadow and darkness he's
0: got john alton
1: as a cinematographer the top noir uh, cinematographer and you know Obviously, shadows and darkness are not unusual in a noir film, but I don't think you ever get a very strong sense of what is the geography of this city or even mm-hmm. any of the buildings that they're in. And darkness is always something that like, unpleasant people and things emerge from, like that scene, I think, at the docks uh, to- towards the end.
0: Yeah, where... where it's supposed to take place on the docks and all they really have is mm-hmm. like a the back of a building mm-hmm. that two car headlights shine and everything else is
1: covered in fog. There are many scenes that take place in dark rooms They're just lit by one light.
0: And the light is sometimes too bright as well, Mm -hmm. so it creates kind of like a halo effect around everything that's happening, giving it a sense of unreality. So, in the big combo,
1: the noir world is a world where you're never quite sure where you are. Something can jump out and kill you and hurt you at at any time. And there's this guy, Richard Conte, the mob boss, who he is totally comfortable here because he's a creature of the sewer. He runs this dark, noirish place. If you're going up against him, You're in this world without a flashlight, but he knows where everything is.
0: But at the same time, the hero, played by Cornell Wilde, is bad in his own way Mm -hmm. because he's so obsessed with taking Richard Conte down that everything in his past just gets bulldozed and destroyed and killed. Mm -hmm. And I think that is why The Big Combo is considered one of the best noirs Ever is because it does have that duality that all the best noirs do, which is like, all right, who's the good guy and who's the bad guy? Mm-hmm. Or are they both bad guys in this expressionist kind of place that it looks like a city, but it doesn't feel like one yeah. because it feels too big or too empty. And like you said, you don't know what can come out of the darkness at you.
1: Yeah, and, and, if you, and you're never in like the good spots of the city. You're mm-hmm. always in the, spot, the spots where you're not supposed to be, and it's always three in the morning, so <laughs> your vision is already impaired.
0: Joseph H. Lewis, it's not just the visuals that made him famous. Like The big combo, one of the most famous scenes in it, that he says was actually suggested by like a grip, there's a murder sequence where one of the characters wears an earpiece the entire film Mm -hmm. and the baddie goes alright you don't need to hear yourself die and he takes the earpiece out which then everything goes silent Mm -hmm. I think you hear a slight hum in the background Mm -hmm. as that character is murdered which is like great kind of uh, genre defying stuff
1: his most famous movie though as we said is gun crazy from 1949 which uh, this is a noir right would you call uh, this guaranteed a noir? Yeah. yeah yeah you know the influence of this movie is all over like the early Jean-Luc Godard movies a lot of the new wave Bonnie and Clyde as well not just for the story but for the sort of
0: well the way uh, that it was made like the
1: free and
0: energetic style you mentioned gun crazy you mentioned one scene slash shot which is the bank robbery Mm -hmm. um you'll hear people like martin scorsese just talk like excitedly about this scene which is joseph h lewis had to shoot a bank robbery and he was like oh man i don't know if i'm gonna have time to do all this or how to make it dynamic so what he ended up doing was shooting all of it from the back of a car that starts with them on the road they wait in
1: front of the bank then, they struggle to find a parking spot. <laughs> yeah, that's
0: right. And then they go rob the bank, but we stay in the car the entire time until the person comes out, things kinda of go wrong, and a chase begins. And you may think, oh wow, how could nobody think of this before? But Joseph H. Lewis doesn't just shoot from the back of a car. He rented a stretch limo and he put the camera on greased wooden boards mm-hmm. so he can actually dolly in and out of the car mm-hmm. to punctuate dramatic moments, which is like what really makes it.
1: And like long takes are obviously cool. Mm-hmm. Uh, but what really separates this one too is the fact that it's on real streets and people are real, really driving. So there's that sense of danger as well. Like
0: supposedly, you can hear someone scream, "They're robbing the bank!" And that <laughs> wasn't an extra because they didn't block off the streets. Even though that, according to them, they also had people on the car with boom mics mm-hmm. to get the audio
1: once they left the the car. I would also like to direct people's attention to another famous scene of the film. Well, first I should say that the movie is about this young man who, ever since he was a kid, has been obsessed with guns. Mm-hmm loves guns not in a violent way though in a way that he just loves shooting things and he loves holding the thing in his hand Mm -hmm. uh, you know to the point where he got in trouble for robbing like throwing a brick in the window of a store and trying to steal a gun so he was you know sent off to military school or wherever he was sent off to until he was 18 and then as uh, an 18 19 year old he goes to a circus and he meets this one does (laughs) yeah he meets this woman this sharpshooter who is the only person around who is almost as good a shooter as him and he challenges her to a Duel who can do the best sharpshooting, and they each like put matches on their heads. Um, and, and what a great scene! So good. Okay, the scene where she is shooting for the first time, Lewis positions his camera in such a way that while she's shooting, it's kind of a low angle shot where you sort of see her from behind. What is the most prominent thing on her body that is at the center of the frame that we're looking at? It's her backside, she's firing the gun. You see her, you see her backside, you see her smiling, and then it keeps coming back to him in the audience. And visually, he is linking the gun with sex. Mm-hmm. And you were supposed to, as a viewer, look at her uh, lovely body and associate that with the gunfire. And he's, he's visually communicating to you without saying it that, you are going to find this gun sexually attractive, just like he does. Even
0: in that scene, you never step out of the perspective of the man when he is shooting or being shot at. When he's being shot at, it's from his perspective, back far away. Mm -hmm. And when he's shooting, it's again on him. Mm -hmm. She's always an object that he's looking at as opposed to someone that you're supposed to associate with because that's the way that the protagonist is
1: viewing her. That's absolutely true. It's definitely a male gaze Mm -hmm. film. Uh, Although I do think Peggy comes performance so good it's unbelievable i'll kill him i'll kill them all i mean there's something about her uh like there's an enormous vulnerability to mm-hmm. her performance uh, well
0: it would have been easy to just make her a femme like, fatale yeah the evil villain that this innocent man has dragged along with but you do feel bad for both of them as it goes along yeah. and it just gets out of their control and
1: then you get swept up in the crazy love that they have like gun crazy is an accurate title Mm -hmm. you know another of my favorite scenes in the movie is after this robbery they've done which has almost gone wrong and they're supposed to split for three months and then reunite and they really do need to split for three months if they're going to reunite because things have gone bad enough that if they don't split they're going to get caught but then as they're driving off they look back and they drive back towards each other the music swells God, I love that scene. It's just the perfect melding of uh, music and script and camera work.
0: Now, when I think of this movie, what my mind goes to almost automatically is Quentin Tarantino's True Romance. Mm -hmm. And I think of this as well because while that film was directed by Tony Scott... When it was originally going to be directed by Maniac Cops, William Lustig, Gun Crazy was the film that he compared it to. Mm. And I think there's a good comparison to make between Gun Crazy and Tony Scott's True Romance, because one of them is almost like a fable between these two characters, Mm. this almost dreamscape of romance and kind of male gazy like, mm. oh man, wouldn't it be cool? While Gun Crazy is a little bit more sober than that. Mm. And I think because of that is a better film.
1: Yeah, it, it is it is more sober. Like it regards them as crazy, mm. and yet On some level, it also kind of gets caught up in the craziness. Like it is ferociously directed. You know, there are so many scenes in the movie of cops speaking on the radio. Mm -hmm. And whenever you see that, the camera like zooms in on them because it's so hyperbolic.
0: (laughs) And then the film ends in the way that me and Will love the most in a bunch of fog. In this case, a swamp. Mm-hmm. and wow what a sequence basically a nightmare where it's like shadows and you just see reeds up in the air and everything
1: kind of shrouded in the darkness so i don't know it is interesting that he is somehow with his camera able to make a movie where like in that scene at the circus you were supposed to as an audience member feel the sexual attraction to both the woman and the gun simultaneously and yet it's a more objective film than something like True Romance. Mm -hmm.
0: It is objective because it's constantly questioning its own premise. This idea that like, wow, these guns are cool and you like these people, but now it's too far and they killed someone and now they can't stop killing. And like the final moments of the picture is really tough on the audience Mm -hmm. because you're like, well... This is obviously the good person, but this person as well. Like, I don't want bad stuff to happen to them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's why it's a classic that it deserves to be. <laughs> yeah,
1: it, It's a rich emotional experience. So from what I've read, Gun Crazy wasn't
0: a big hit um, when it came to cinemas. So his next gig that he did was a picture for MGM, A Lady Without a Passport, a Hedy Lamar film, which... Watching it this week was one of his most technically accomplished films, but just like Lewis said in interviews after the fact, it was a bad script that I didn't want to make, and I Mm. thought that I could kind of spice it up with visual flair, and it just kind of lays there, Mm. in his opinion, and also in my opinion, too. From that point on, he kind of just bounced around, making War Picture, Retreat Hell. He made a a story about children lost in the Canadian wilderness called Desperate Search, The Big Combo, and a bunch of westerns, which include A Lawless Street, The Holiday Brand, sevens cavalry and the last feature film he ever made which me and will watched terror in a texas town
1: which i think was shot for eighty thousand dollars which at the time was quite a low budget for something like and
0: this, and it was done in 10 days as well lewis did it for his very good friend nedrick young who was an actor and a writer what happened was nedrick young had been blacklisted in the red scare that happened in hollywood so he couldn't get any work And Young got a bunch of his friends, including uh, Dalton Trumbo, who wrote uh, Terror in a Texas Town, to make a picture just independently. Mm -hmm. The problem with that is that anybody who was involved in this production would also be blacklisted. But Joseph H. Lewis said, I don't friggin care like this will be the last feature film i ever make so let me just shoot it and why was it his last film um because he had a heart attack when he was in his 40s he blames it on being a perfectionist on how he wanted every movie to be as good as it could be and one day he got home and he just couldn't even take a swim which he did every night just collapsed in his bed and his wife said listen you need to stop working this hard because I'd rather be living in a one-room apartment with a husband than be a rich widow." And Joseph H. Lewis said, You know what? You're right. Uh, He broke a contract that he had signed to direct more feature films And he went on to live a full and happy 93 years of
1: life. Yeah, he lived well into the early 2000s, I think. Mm -hmm. Um, And Terror in a Texas Town, 1959 was his last movie.
0: Yeah, and Terror in a Texas Town is weird. It stars Sterling Hayden, who is a Swedish uh, whaler who shows up after his father is murdered and he wants to take revenge with a big whaling harpoon.
1: It's one of those uh, deals where his father owns some property that's above oil and so some bad people are Mm -hmm. Trying to make everyone sell their land uh sterling hayden you know it's a he's inherited this land and uh damn it, he's not going to back down to these bad people
0: and like a lot of his later day period westerns Terran texas town is very stripped down mm. like there's not a lot of action there's not a lot of excitement i um while i was watching it not just because um, sterling hayden is doing a swedish accent but it feels very bergman-esque <laughs> characters especially later in lewis's career Very rarely looked at each other when they talked. He loved to like frame like, you know, Bergman's two shot where people like shoulders to shoulder looking in different directions and having like kind of existential conversations.
1: It definitely does feel like one of those later Westerns Mm -hmm. uh, because, you know, there's nothing glamorous about the West here. It's a lot of old men and disillusioned sex workers.
0: And And Nedrick Young, who plays the villain of the piece is essentially the main character <laughs> where you follow him the most.
1: And I mean, it's interesting that it's written by like a lot of blacklisted people because it's the sort of movie that has this this view of like, well, you know, the system is rigged. Mm-hmm. And yeah, okay, you think you own this land? You don't own yeah, this land. That's right. Yeah. yeah, We'll
0: come in, murder you. And the only way to get the land back is to harpoon those capitalists right in the heart. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> but after that, um, Lewis did go on to work in a bunch of TV shows. Mm-hmm. Essentially, the deal he made with the studio was I will work one week a month on one show. You give me the scripts that you're about to shoot and I get to pick which ones I want to make Mm. and he did that for a number of years working on shows like The Rifleman and uh, he directed one episode of Bonanza which he said was the worst experience of his life and like his best TV shows are like mini movies Mm. like there's one that I watched and The Devil Make 5 an episode of The Rifleman which is all about Chuck Connors the titular rifleman wakes up in his sleeping bag with a rattlesnake in it so the other three characters have to figure out a way to get the rattlesnake off Chuck Connors who cannot talk, cannot move because if he does, he could be bit and he could die. Mm. And so it's just like a tense, 21-minute little suspense piece Mm. that Alfred Hitchcock did the same kind of idea a few years uh, earlier in an episode of Alfred Hitchcock Presents that he directed Joseph Lewis did it better. So uh, I recommend checking that one out. It's actually on YouTube.
1: Well, I didn't know much about Joseph H. Lewis before this week. I'd seen Gun Crazy, Mm -hmm. The Invisible Ghost, and uh, this was an exciting week because it just shows that there's always something to discover. Mm -hmm. Uh, I look at this vast Joseph H. Lewis filmography, and I know that all these movies are going to have at least something. Yeah, yeah. I I, mean... You know, Pride of the Bowery? A lot of nice shots. I
0: I checked out his uh, anime Wong film, Bombs Over Burma, (laughs) which is... Very dull. But what's interesting about it is that it starts with like four minutes of Mandarin where the characters who are Chinese are actually speaking their own language, which was a rarity for a time like that. And then it slowly kind of transitions into English in the way that The Hunt for Red October does. (laughs) (laughs) So, uh, yeah, Joseph H. Lewis. Definitely check out like Gun Crazy,
1: Big Combo, and you know there's a Arrow Video is putting out a new Blu-ray of My Name Is Julia Ross this month,
0: and they're also putting out uh, So Dark the Night right. as well. I mean, I checked out The Swordsman, which is one of his rare color films. Which the story goes that he was given a script and he said another Western. Could I make it swords instead of guns? And they went sure. So it's like this swashbuckling filled with his long shots mm. and his shooting through objects and looking at letterbox it had never been reviewed wow. so joseph h lewis is definitely an auteur that like a lot of his work is waiting to be discovered
1: Justin, do we have any letters?
0: Yes, we do. Uh, as per usual, you can send us letters at Podcast at gmail.com. The first letter is from Zanik Height, and he says, Hello, Justin and Will. As a longtime listener, I first wanted to thank you for the hours of informative entertainment you two provide on a weekly basis. After finding a link to your show online, someone recommended you as two very nice Canadians talking about movies. Nah, we're bad to the bone. <laughs> I've been hooked ever since downloading your John Carpenter episode. Just this week, I managed to clear entire backlog for both the main show and Patreon episodes and finally managed to watch Teddy Bomb and Impossible Horror in a back-to-back evening screening. Wow, thank you very much. Uh, I just want to interrupt here that the Important Cinema Club Journal actually has the diaries that I wrote uh, while I made Teddy Bomb included as an article. And man, those uh, journals are depressing. Watch Justin's relationship crumble. <laughs> yeah, many relationships. <laughs> my hedonistic binge watching of your media was rewarded twofold in the Super Show airing online recently and your book release today. News to say, you have a fan for life in this humble moviegoer, and I anxiously await the delivery of my copy of the important Cinema Club journal. Oh, thank you. A question I have had for a while, and apologies if you addressed this already in an early episode. How do you prioritize and pick what movies you watch in your free time. Clearly the field of choice is reduced to a director's or actor's field of work, and or theme genre when recording an episode. But inside of the podcast field, how do you make your picks? I have found 2019 so far to be slow on theater pickings, and I can't justify bandwagoning to catch re-screenings of Oscar-nominated films. Yet every time I open Letterboxd to my watch list or any queue I have on a streaming service, I am overwhelmed with options, even when pared down by my own hand. And I often find myself settling on the shortest runtime I can find after so much time searching. Any tips or tricks on streamlining the past to a successful movie night when choices abound? Well, you're not alone. Many <laughs> of us have
1: chosen based on running time.
0: And oftentimes I've been like, oh man, I can't watch. wait to watch all these movies. And I make long lists. And then when I finally have a free moment, I'm like, oh, I don't want to watch any of these movies. Uh, it happens to me all the time. I guess I'll just watch, I don't know, The Invisible Ghost or
1: something <laughs> like that. <laughs> uh, I would say just watch whatever you're feeling like watching at that moment. Mm-hmm. Very simple.
0: I actually wrote in the Important Cinema Club newsletter that went out to $10 Patreon subscribers unrelated to this letter, an article that is like, what do I watch when I'm in a particular mood? Mm. So it'd be like, you know, when you get home on a Friday or after a long day of work, what kind of movie do i find works best for me so you can see that if you are a newsletter subscriber but other than that it's hard man like every time i try to create a system where i'm like okay this is how i'm going to challenge myself and create balance eventually you're like this is so hard (laughs) like why can't i just watch something easy and then it just crumbles around me and i have to force myself not just to watch hong kong
1: action cinema um day in and day out i say if you have a glimmer of a feeling that you want to challenge yourself Mm -hmm. follow it do it
0: and you'll probably come out happier at the end of the day because you will feel like shit if all you watch is the one thing that you like and i'm not even joking like you won't probably consciously recognize that but you're gonna be like i don't even want to watch movies anymore because you just like you activated that pleasure center too many times yeah but also don't don't stress out about it too much (laughs) no i mean just watch what you have time to watch and don't feel like you need to watch a bunch of stuff just to like to fit in with people because guess what it doesn't matter just watch what you like to watch Also, I would love to hear a Patreon episode or your opinion on any of the works of the following directors, Alex Garland, Jeremy Saulnier, Lynn Ramsey, or Adam Wingard, if they merit your attention. I group these directors together since they stand out as a collection of filmmakers that brought me greater appreciation for the art as a whole with their first one or two movies, but also who I live in fear of disappearing to the studio streaming system. And it may be too late for Wingard of new Blair Witch and Godzilla vs. King Kong fame. Keep up the excellent work, and I can't wait to see what this year has in store for the ICC lineup. Your humble listener, Zenik. Well, thank you very much for the letter, Zenik. Uh I feel like I would like to do a Lynn Ramsey episode. It'd be easy too. She hasn't made that many feature films. Sure. Uh, as far as the other ones, they're all pretty they're new. They're new.
1: Yeah, Jeremy Saulnier, I don't quite have a good handle on yet. He's yeah. only made one or two. Yeah. Uh, he has. He has actually been the cinematographer for a lot mm-hmm. of
0: films, which gives like another different perspective. Yeah, Jeremy Saulnier. He has Murder Party. He has Green Blue Book. Ruin. Uh, Not Green Book. Not Green green Room. (laughs) Green Room. Man, Jerry Saulnier's Green Book. Love it. And he also has Hold the Dark, which came out on Netflix, which... I did not like. But, um, yeah, once he has a few more films under his belt, I would definitely like to do an episode on him. So our next letter is from Paul Konecki, and it goes, Hey, Will and Justin, or is it Justin and Will? I just discovered your podcast. And I'm Stop a- planting seeds of discontent. <laughs> and I'm enjoying it immensely. So much that I purchased your new book from Amazon. And it's arriving tomorrow afternoon. Being relatively new to your show, I've listened to about a dozen episodes this last week. Oh, it's too much. Oh. Too much. Uh, you'll be contaminated. For all I know, you've already been asked these questions, but just in case... How do you guys manage to retain what seems like an ungodly amount of arcane movie trivia? Implants, drugs, or do you just do a lot of prep before each podcast? Regardless, I'm in awe. I know some pretty hardcore film buffs, and I fancy myself one as well, but nobody I know can spew out facts as quickly as you guys can. You're like Tarantinos on steroids. That's because we're so buff if there's a secret to your amazing memory skills, please share. There is no secret. Uh, we have forgotten most of the things that we have talked about. <laughs> I've said this before, but did you know we did a Guy Madden episode? What did we talk on that episode? <laughs> Crazy.
1: I think I remember the things worth knowing.
0: <laughs> to be quite honest, Will is good with dates and names. I am not. But I can. I'm um, pretty good with like,
1: who directed a film and titles of films. I will say that, like, there is no filmmaker that I can name that you haven't heard of. (laughs) That's true, yeah. And I think vice versa, Mm -hmm. right? Yeah. We're Uh, well matched. Any time that, like... I get excited of a new
0: filmmaker that like you haven't heard of or I haven't heard of that's like a moment where we're like yeah we throw like a little party yeah. there's nothing more exciting than seeing a list and I'm like who is that
1: and then you know usually by the next week one of us will have watched oh, yeah.
0: Robert Flory was one that you shared with me like a little while yeah. back that I'd never heard of
1: and you uh, mentioned Don Doler, and now I've just bought his named uh, his <laughs> on Blu-ray and I'm <laughs> looking forward to, <laughs> to following that uh, there's just one more
0: question here it says have you seen the movie Film Geek from 2005 I am embarrassed by how much of myself I can see in the titular character. Hopefully I'm not quite as annoying. You guys remind me of him too, but you're definitely not as annoying. Anyway, if you've seen it, I'd love to hear your thoughts. If not, it's worth a look. I have not seen it, but
1: I know of it. Yeah, me too. I should check it out though, because we just watched that Cinemania documentary, Mm -hmm. and you know, I think we both identified quite a bit with it. So it might be right up my alley. Thank you very much for the letter, Paul,
0: and I hope that you listen to every single episode twice. And we
1: really really appreciate you uh,
0: buying our book. Again, you can email us at Important Cinema Club Podcast if you have any questions. And for the first time on our Facebook group, after every episode is posted, I'm gonna create a discussion thread on one of the movies we talked about that week. This first one is gonna be on Gun Crazy. So check out the Important Cinema Club on Facebook. Uh, There'll be a big photo and it'll be in capital letters, Movie of the Week, Gun Crazy, and just start a discussion. You can uh, share your thoughts on it, uh, maybe ask questions if you uh, wanna know what other people's opinions are on it. And just don't be mean and negative because I will kick you out of the group. Mm. But I'm sure none of our listeners are like that. And they're Mm. all very calm,
1: cool, and collected cats. It's like the island of misfit toys.
0: (laughs) That's right. Yeah, they all get along. So, again, that's on Facebook. And our Patreon this week is dedicated
1: to the movie People on Sunday. Because you can't talk about Joseph H. Lewis without also throwing a little love to Edgar G. Ulmer. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) And uh, People on Sunday
0: is a film that has a murderer's row of German um, cinematic talent that were very young and just got together cinephiles and made this movie in 1929, 1930 mm-hmm. in the Weimar era of Germany. And it's a neorealist kind of precursor at the same time having expressionist touches. And this is all stuff that me and Will love, so we have a ball talking about it. Mm-hmm. You can listen to that episode uh, by going to patreon.com slash the important cinema club and becoming a member for $5 and you get a new episode every week exclusive to the patreon stream and for ten dollars you will get a newsletter in the mail every month and next week we're talking miyazaki buckle in to listen to us mispronounce japanese words for 40
1: minutes Whenever a repertory cinema needs money.
0: Ah, oh, man, you beat me to the joke. <laughs> I was going to say that we're going to watch these movies by going to, I'm sure there's some retrospective out there that's playing his films. But we won't be able to get a ticket because they'll all be sold out. That's, that's right. how it always is. Listen, if there's any investors out there, I want to make a Miyazaki grindhouse that it's just his films 24 hours a day. Yeah, you
1: can go in there and, you know, get a hand job or whatever else <laughs> happens. Right.
0: Watch job. My Neighbor Totoro and have yourself a swell time. Yeah. And you know what? It'll always be sold out. <laughs> so, yeah. So, we're um, going to be doing his work, which,
1: I'm going to be honest, I haven't seen probably since high school. Miyazaki's one of those people who, yeah, he is entry-level cinephile, you know... I think of his movies, and I think of being in my parents' basement, mm-hmm. watching A Clockwork Orange for the first time, <laughs> watching Fight Club for the first time, and then watching... A uh, Spirited Away. Spirited Away, you know, one Which those. was
0: everywhere when it came out, because oh, yeah. it was no- nominated for Oscars, and I remember I went to the little mom-and-pop uh, video store in the small town where I lived, and they actually had copies of it, which blew my mind. Mm-hmm. So we're going to be talking about The Castle of... Cagliostro, the, with uh,
1: Lupin the Third.
0: Yeah, which uh, I've seen the other non Miyazaki loop in the third films, they are very sexual. <laughs> so okay. his is not though. And we will probably be watching another one of his films. I think we decided on main, my neighbor Totoro*, which is kind of like the ultimate example of his work. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure I'm going to watch a whole buncher in the week as well, because I don't remember them that well. They're like faint glimmers in my mind. He's a good filmmaker. You I know? need uh, Michael Keaton
1: doing the main
0: voice of the English dub on Porco Rosso. I love Porco Rosso. I yeah.
1: love uh, Howl's Moving Castle. Um, mm-hmm. Again, moving. I haven't seen since high school.
0: So um, we're going to go on a time machine and we'll be with you next week when we have that discussion. And until then, my name is Justin
1: I'm Will Sloan. Thanks for listening. So this week I went to the TIFF Bell Lightbox to see... Ho Shao Shen's film Millennium Mambo. Were you by yourself? I was yes and in fact when I got there I thought it would just be you know the usual suspects all the all the people that you normally see at a rep screening of a glacially slow Taiwanese art film. <laughs> I was gonna say that you know you wanted to experience it with a crowd so you could all like cheer and clap at the same time. I want to see it with a like-minded crowd mm-hmm. of seven or eight elderly men. I uh, mean it does star uh Shu Key from right. uh,
0: the transporter and Go- so close, and gorgeous with yeah, Jackie Chan. Right.
1: She was also a Cat Three actress in the nineties. That's right, and the Assassin more recently. Oh yeah, speaking of another Hao Shen film, that I love the Assassin, great, great movie. Yeah, and I like Millennium Mambo quite a bit too. Um, but I was horrified when I got to the theater to discover that it was programmed as part of TIFF's Next Wave Festival. What's TIFF's Next Wave? It is for uh, um, I'm vamping here. I, I know what it is. <laughs> <laughs> I know you do. It's uh, for youth by youth um, Will's like, why didn't they call me? And, you know, I realize I'm 30 years old now. I'm My hair is going gray. I am no longer you. <laughs> going gray?
0: My uh, hair is already gray.
1: <laughs> there was a time not long ago when I would have been one of these kids. <laughs>
0: yeah. Uh, and Happy, now,
1: wide-eyed for the future. I am I am old to them now, and that bothers me. Um, so when
0: you walked in, were they like, oh, man, look at this old guy. Creepy. Is he going to sit beside one of us? <laughs> nope. They didn't even notice me. <laughs> yeah, you were invisible to them. You passed the 29-year-old bear
1: and you became an invisible man but they had it in cinema 2, which is a big theater and it was very busy mm. lots of people there and I thought oh no these kids don't know what they're in for oh my god you are an old man <laughs> uh, well okay but I'm an old man with experience <laughs> right, right? Yeah. I've been around the block <laughs>
0: back in my day
1: (laughs) so you know the movie starts and of course the audience was quite polite and well behaved throughout although the the teens in my immediate vicinity did not like this movie
0: did they start like texting and i don't know there was um... some
1: texting you know in the second half of the movie because this is a two-hour movie and if you're not into it those are a long two hours the teens behind me in the second half every time a scene started you could hear one of them go Oh. Uh, they weren't at least mst 3 k it or anything like that? No, no. I mean, that, how do you
0: MST3K <laughs> Millennium Mamba?
1: There's not enough dialogue to bounce yeah. off of. Um, but yeah, they were definitely not into it. And I was in this weird feeling of being like superior you're like hmm, not, well, i came here for
0: the right reason not
1: superior because i want them to enjoy it yeah um, you're right and i also want them to have the right context for what it is because on the facebook event for this it said considered the blueprint for moonlight <laughs> and i'm sorry it is not the blueprint for moonlight it has no relation to moonlight i'm sure barry jenkins likes it and i mm-hmm. he probably drew some influence from it but in no way is the plot remotely similar
0: but i think that there's something noble about next wave programming a film that for all of purposes is, is more difficult yeah. than what you would expect from something like TIFF Next Wave. That's true. Do you think maybe they just weren't prepared for it? That they were there because it's part of the festivities, and they're like,
1: "Oh no." Possibly. I mean, it's a tough movie for ten o'clock at night as mm-hmm. well. It's it's a little slow, and you know, <laughs> a little slow. <laughs> Uh, but but also, you know, perhaps a lot of people at the theater liked it, and mm. I was just surrounded by the people who didn't. I do remember, though, it brought back memories of going to see Three Times when I was in high school. I think I was in grade 10 or 11, and I went downtown to see it. And uh, You saw it three times? No. The, oh. No, his movie called Three Times. <laughs> okay. It's a Ho Shao <laughs> film. I
0: was like, man, I know you were such a mambo head. No.
1: When I saw Three Times in the theater, I had never seen anything that slow before, and I was... <sighs> I was that millennial. So I'm also looking at these people behind me with a glimmer they're of recognition. probably not
0: millennials. You realize that, right? Like, you're a millennial. You're right. They're, they're a millennial. No, they're not because they're like, I said, so you're right. I'm, I'm a
1: millennial. They're Gen Z.
0: Yeah, yeah. Like, your, it is. your memory and our ability to talk is already going in our late age.
1: Yeah. Uh, So I definitely, like, recognized and empathized with that Mm. feeling, too, being confronted with something like this. But what I also remember is having been so appalled by three times, the movie stuck with me. Mm. And then I sought out – like, I sought out Millennium Mambo (laughs) as a teenager, watching it thinking – what even is this? Like this doesn't it does it doesn't make sense to me that this is what a movie looks like. And now I love Hoshes. Well, i So perhaps
0: that a Stockholm syndrome. No. But there's a difference between them and you, which is that when you were a teenager and you saw this movie that you like trekked to Toronto to see and it stuck with you, you were like, ah, it's, it's bugging me I want to wanna figure it. it
1: out figure it out if I'm yeah. a teen
0: now I'm like I'll just go on the internet and look at something else different and yeah. I won't think about that because something else could take up my time yeah, that's kids sad. these days mm-hmm. so I mean hopefully they do that and they go and try to discover more stuff and but. hopefully some of them liked it too mm-hmm. I don't know So, uh, not good, a lot of walkouts good on TIFF's Next Wave for programming I mean you can't walk out of like a TIFF Next Wave screening can you wait when did you see it
1: because I was there when like festivities were going on yeah you, you watched Dirty Ho which I, I missed although I, I'm halfway through it now ugh
0: Uh, It is so good. Very
1: enjoyable. Dirty Ho is a Shaw Brothers martial arts movie. It's about a man named Ho. Yes. Who's who's
0: dirty because he's a con man. (laughs) So I don't know what you guys are thinking. (laughs) And it's uh, Gordon Liu, who is most famous for starring in 36 Chambers of Shaolin. And another guy, I don't remember what his name is. Uh,
1: He's credited as Yu Wang, Mm -hmm. but he's not Jimmy Wang Yu. No, he's not.
0: And so the film is about... It's my favorite kind of setup for a Hong Kong film, which is, like, someone pretends that they're not good at martial arts in front of somebody else. Did you get to the sequence where they're drinking tea at one point? Yeah, 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 yeah. And, like, that scene, what a tour de force, which is two characters drinking tea in a room filled with people, and they're fighting... While still like pretending to like drink tea and yeah. to pretend to be in this situation, without letting anybody know that it's happening,
1: it's like ballet. It's it, incredible. Yeah, it's so good. And honestly, just look up the opening credits to Dirty Ho, and if you are not sold, <laughs> then you're not going to be sold for this movie. You, I mean, I will not. We will never be, agree on anything if you're not sold on. <laughs> I
0: that. mean, this film was directed by Lockhart Long, who was the greatest action choreographer. And I guess essentially martial arts director to like ever work ever mm-hmm. <laughs> because he is so good in the fights in dirty Ho. Like there's another scene where they're like looking at art and the exact same situation plays out where they have to pretend to be like looking at art as they're doing mm-hmm. like gravity defying kind of balletic action choreography that just it just takes my breath away. And it was amazing to see with an audience at the light box because you could feel like the audience laugh not necessarily because it's a funny joke because it's not like that just at the amazement of what's happening mm-hmm. on screen, like that this situation can continue to play out mm-hmm. and work and be so excellently choreographed. Mm-hmm. Ah, just what an experience and you can do it at home. Watch Dirty Ho, great film, and Millennium Mambo. Sounds like a double bill to me. <laughs> I know I haven't done this in a while, but I'd really like to thank all of our Patreon subscribers at the moment So, in quick succession as I mispronounce all of your names I'd like to thank J.P. McDevic, Zenek. Alex Kleiss, Glenn Stefani, Theodore Schultz, GC, Scotty Gilmer, Michael Hendra, Michael Frollo, Tim Vermeulen, Juha Matula, Samuel Sanchez, Lewis, Sinjin, Gregory, Dustin Eisman, Nathaniel Hendricks, Matt Kludge, Ted Rowland, Jeffrey Seigris, David Dean, Philip DeClue, Jesse Shira, David Fior, Albert Davis, Nate in St. Paul, Eddie Avril, Stuart Shepard, Sean Glennis, James Smith, William Walker, Shen John, Roy Bussell, Taylor, Jordan Cox, Stephanie Riopal, Nick, Anthony James Marshall, Jane Smith, Peter Gurn, CWW, Justin Haley, Miran Turzik, Todd Frazier, Anthony Saunders, Rari McCann, Even Furness, David, Joe Kickass, Andrew Bolsover, Squeeze Squibbles, Michael Carroll, Zachary Ainsley, Douglas Patterson, Nason Snicky, Jason Lenker, William Mosley, Oliver Bulmer, Ned Grade, Chase Coach, Matt H., Elias Brainder, J.G. Perry, Sean Enright, Mura, Wolf Walden, The Dread Lottery, Clint Isinger, Michael Hess, Gregory Welda, Johnson Culp, Charles Yo, Daniel Dillon, Jorg Mueller, Hank O'Kazi, Neil Broner, Chase P. Bernstein, Thomas Silkarski, Malcolm Baum, Rory and Anderson, Jew and Damien, Sam Story, Ted Kelly, David Straub, Ian Keese, Rick Kane, Geoff Jones, Brent Oliver, William Nyrie, Plasto, Alex P. Max Hunnam, Leslie Kyle, Kate Parrington, Ma- Mark Slutsley, Kaylin Kramer, Zach Fuller, Bennett Grace, Koshaw, Egan Christopher, Harris Frost, Callum Joe, Alex Lurd, Brad Johnson, Matthew Gadsby, Valerie, Joel McKaylee, Aaron Dawson, Tyler Plunkett, Jacob Konsetta, Alan Butt, Seven, Ed Begley Jr., Alec Berg, Ralph, Daniel Benoit, Gustav Reidel, Steven Vag, Saul Immerman, Roy Den Joe McGregor, Joe, Danny Ramon. Gabe Neville Guy Nelson Trey McKinley Yan Graff David Ibister, Turka and Marco Balaban Jacob Wallingford Stuart Shivers Alex Sensei Ian Dillingham Daniel Thomas Johnson Kevin Senny Emil Dirks Emmett Crudus Michael Spajanon Zach H Zyoshi Brian Burt James Tatcher, William Buckingham Michael Cho Daniel Acosta Alexander Ross Ziad Buasi Lynn Kim Amy Jordan Christenberg Serena Tetstone Lucas Barwinzik Ben Pope Laurent Garepi Alex Griffith John Semley William Jones Borgia Perez Dash Bove, Don Tom Cola, Aaron Kelly, Liam James, Chris Chon, Gart, John Straczynski, Kay, John Paul McKenna, Justin Fox, Etienne Grépeau, Graham, Ethan Vespi, Scott Turnbull, Jack Frayne-Reed, Daryl Bartlett, Tyler Balsrope, Thomas Rostock, Terry McCarthy, Sam Rokowski, Andrew Ford, Brandon Lim, April Itmanski, David Springfield, Sam Lindgren, Rick Dakar, Tim Schofield, Jacob Peterson, Violet Luca, Jay Crosby, Zach Tennant, Cameron Maitland, Jacob Adam, Dorkshelf, Chris Berube. <sighs> <sighs> Thank you very much for all being Patreon subscribers. We really appreciate it, and it keeps us going. If you'd like to become a Patreon subscriber, you can do it at patreon.com slash Club.